This is Ian Perry. Welcome to Keeping Green. Broadcasting at the University of Calgary on Treaty 7 land and Métis Region 3. On this week's episode, we talk about marine conservation. First, with Lucy Poli and Tim Carleal, as they discuss a new marine park set up in the Gulf of California. And later, I discuss the herring fishery in the Strait of Georgia with Deirdre Leonata. Stick around. While vacationing in Mexico in 2015, a married couple, Lucy Poli and Tim Carleal, stumbled across Laredo, Mexico, on the Baja Peninsula. They have been involved in a conservation effort ever since, aimed at protecting the fisheries and the wildlife in that area of the Sea of Cortez. So we went to Laredo, Mexico, which is uh, in Baja, California, sir, um, about six-hour drive north of Los Cabos. It's on the Sea of Cortez side of Baja, California, and uh, just in the water there outside of Laredo is the Bahia de Laredo uh, National Marine Park, which is what we were interested in particularly. And you are part of a conservation effort there, as uh, I understand from our, our conversation before. We were kind of there um, independently, so I do video production, and we're working on a short film about um, the conservation initiatives that kind of resulted in this park being created in the first place. Um, so we were working uh, with a gentleman who was sort of one of the original uh, people from the community that founded a local conservation organization that after a lot of hard work and kind of petitioning the government got this area designated as a national marine park. And so what are some of the conservation issues in the Sea of Cortez or I guess otherwise known as the, the Gulf of California? Yeah, so I guess what kind of started this is um, during the, the 70s, there were no real regulations, and, and prior to that too, there were no real regulations about how the ocean could be used. So there were a lot of international uh, commercial shipping companies coming into the Gulf of California and uh, doing really destructive large-scale fishing. And in a lot of cases, um, these were international companies, so it wasn't you know benefiting um, the local population in any way either, along with being really destructive for the environment. So um, a few people who were sort of local fishermen in the community of Laredo started to see, you know, a really big impact as a result of this uh, lack of regulation during that time. Um, so they they were seeing their, you know, their normal catch in a day and in a season declining quite a bit, along with a lot of, um, like, you know, dead uh, marine mammals and, and other creatures washing up. And just seeing that destruction firsthand is what sort of um, resulted in them coming together and saying, hey, this is not really acceptable and it's it's going to affect our livelihood in the long term. And they realized that the only way to prevent this from happening was really through regulation. So they, they worked for uh, almost a decade um, to create community engagement and start dialogue and work with politicians to really sort of document what was happening and, uh, you know, try to do something about it by 
creating a structure in which it could be better. Right. right. And so what kind of fisheries were were most affected? Is there is there a catch in that area of the world which is vital to the economy in that region? Um, that's a good question. I think it's a really mer- biodiverse marine area. In particular, there's actually coral reefs near there. Um, so I don't think it was any one fishery in particular, but rather the whole marine ecosystem that they were seeing was sort of systematically being dismantled by the presence of these large commercial-scale fishing boats. Um, the fisheries are very seasonal, so... Um, Sometimes they're fishing for shellfish, sometimes shrimp, sometimes rockfish. Um, I think it really depends on the season. So I wouldn't say anyone is is super vital to the economy there, but rather the fact that all year they can fish for something. But when these commercial fishing operations were going on, just the whole ecosystem was being damaged. Yes, uh, I do have some experience on uh, trawl fishing vessels myself as sort of a third-party monitoring and reporting services. So I have seen what, I guess, results when regulations are sort of tightened up. But uh, at the same time, I guess injustices do continue to go on. So with that said, would you say that given the initiative that things are improving? Yeah, definitely. The nice thing about uh, the way the Marina Park is set up now is that the local fishermen can still operate, but they're the only ones allowed to operate there. So their livelihoods are secure in that sense. And it's also given them the opportunity to diversify into um, running their boats for whale and dolphin and dolphin watching and whale watching and going up to the islands in the national park with tourists. So it's actually gotten rid of the competition of the really large scale foreign operations coming in. And it's giving him this opportunity to make money via tourism. And so there's a lot of, a lot of interest now locally in maintaining and protecting this Marine park. Everybody really realizes how valuable it's been to the locals and uh, their livelihoods. Yeah, always a great sign when uh, tourism can encourage more conservation-minded activities uh, rather than to just contribute to further degrading the system. Um, So you guys were involved in the making of some kind of film. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, so I guess um, the story kind of starts in, it would have been 2015 that Lucy and I I kind of stumbled across um, Laredo more or less by chance. It was through a contact of mine who recommended we come down and sort of see what it was all about. And uh, through that process, we met Fernando, uh, who is the subject of the film. And he he's the, the gentleman I spoke about earlier who was really instrumental along with a few other people in getting this park established in the first place. And he's a, he's a really cool guy. He started off as a as a commercial fisherman, but now he um, works, you know, doing public outreach and working with school groups and youth groups and also doing some whale watching and kind of that ecotourism side of things as well. So we felt that his story was really important because it shows the impact that local people can have, local people who are not necessarily specialists or, um, you know, just, just, kind of average people in a community seeing something uh, wrong with the way things are being done and doing something to change it. So it's kind of a 
we, we felt it was an important story to get out there to the world. Um, so we made the decision to go back and spend a bit more time to film a short film uh, showcasing the park and sort of what it, you know, the beauty of the area, the biodiversity, and also, uh, you know, interview Fernando and talk about the the story that actually led to the park being created. Were you guys doing that kind of work on shore, by boat, sort of a combination of the two? A combination of the two. One of the big challenges there is uh, it gets it can get pretty windy in the boats that typically go out. Uh, but we got out on the water for two days and we did the rest of our work sort of from the shore and doing some interviews and filming around the community. Um, but, you know, the days we got out, it's it's kind of it can be pretty magical if you if you have the right day on the water there you'll see so much uh, maybe lucy do you want to speak about sort of what that's like actually being out on the water yeah um yeah like i said there's a huge diversity of marine life there and in particular in the winter months um late winter around february march it is an important area for whales migrating to come feed ah. so there's not a ton known about the overall migratory patterns of the big baleen whales, like the blue whales, but um, they are pretty well known to come into the, the um, Sea of Cortez in late winter to feed. And so um, the blue whales are the largest animal that's alive now. I think they're, they're the largest animal that's ever lived on the planet. So um, we saw a number of them oh, wow. feeding while we were out on the boat and it's just incredible it's it's hard to describe how big these animals are so that would be a filter feeder am i correct about that yeah yeah they're coming in and feeding on the, the krill right. fernando told us how there's a number of seamounts under the water there and that huh. uh, abrupt change in depth along the shore there makes big upwelling so the cold uh, nutrient-rich water from the Deep part or deeper part of the ocean is pushed up with all the little critters that live in it and the whales can get enough food to sustain themselves for their next leg of their migration wherever they're off to so yeah there's the blue whales there's um finback whales there's humpbacks they get sperm whales in there occasionally which i guess which are uh, they don't filter feed they squid and fish um orcas and a few different species of dolphins as well. So it's a wide variety of whales, but the blue whales are sort of the stars of the show and they really are quite amazing to see. Is there any aspect of, of this protection that will benefit um, sort of the, the shoreline species and more of a terrestrial set of species? Or is this kind of aimed very specifically at marine life and intertidal? Uh, yeah, it is the... National Park does come right to the shore, and I do believe it actually is the coastline along the area where the National Park is. You're not supposed to take things from the beach. Um, and then within the Marine Park, there's five islands, and some islands are quite large. And there on the islands, you have sea lion colonies, and then lots and lots of different seabirds nest there as well. So there's protection for those species. Um it's a really beautiful area as well because it kind of grades right from the sea up into this crazy mountain range of, of desert mountains. Uh, Fernando told us there's a movement to put in a terrestrial national park in the mountainous area, and they have species ranging from you know roadrunners and snakes and lizards and um, up to cougars and bobcats and deer and um, 
so there's there's work being done as well by Fernando and Ooh. people he knows to protect some of that area as well. Sounds good. I mean, the first one must be the hardest after that. Just getting those national parks set up must be easier and easier. <laughs> at least at least you'd <laughs> hope. hope so. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add about the park or just say in general? Um, I think we've we've kind of talked about it uh, throughout this interview, but really the you know the key the key messages to take away from this are that one person or a small group of people really can make a difference, and uh, this this particular park just exemplifies that so well. But you know the I hope that anybody listening to this uh, story, you know, if if you uh, feel similarly to what Fernando and, and the other people in the community of Laredo felt sort of in that period of time, just know that, you know, you, you can make a difference and people have made a difference in the past in this uh, situation. And I think that, um, you know, a, a lot of change really does sort of start with that grassroots effort. Well, I thank you both for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, to talk. Our next guest comes to us after a peaceful demonstration on the water last month off the coast of Hornby Island in British Columbia. The message was clear that the Strait of Georgia herring fishery should be shut until further notice due to low populations. Here to discuss that and more is Deirdre Leonada. communications director for Pacific Wild. So how long have you been with the organization now? I've been with Pacific Wild now for about four years. Can you briefly summarize some of the objectives of Pacific Wild in fisheries conservation? Yeah, so as you know, we're based on the west coast of Canada in an area that's largely made up of these island systems Um, And in these systems in particular, um, you can't really think about terrestrial conservation or conservation in general without thinking of marine conservation. Um, And that's true of a lot of areas, but um, it's quite quite clear and quite stark um, in this archipelago that's right now known as the Great Barrier Forest. So, of course, if you're working conservation Um, fisheries and marine conservation has to be a really, really key part of that. And I think, you know, that's what's missing in um, the way sometimes our government looks at conservation because terrestrial and marine systems are so, so deeply connected. And if we're not looking at both of them at the same time, uh, we often miss out. Right. Well, sort of going off of that then, it's been described that is the pacific herring as a keystone species where it has a a disproportionate effect in the ecosystem uh, relative to its biomass Um, can you sort of expand on that and describe the importance of pacific herring in the west coast food web yeah for sure um so yeah just to expand on you know, the marine issues that we're working on at first. Um, we're working on the Pacific herring issue. We're also starting 
um, a campaign on salmon, um, both species, which are keystone species. Salmon is a really obvious one to a lot of people, and it's kind of a deep part of the identity of British Columbia. But herring are an often overlooked species that form the entire foundation of the food web, which salmon rely on as well. So these tiny little silver fish um, are, when you look at it, not even that closely, they're what our entire ecosystem relies on. They feed absolutely everything from salmon, including endangered Chinook salmon, which in turn feed up the food web to huge iconic carnivores like killer whales. Um, and they feed these species directly as well. On the central coast, we see, we see wolves, especially during the spring spawn. We see wolves feeding on herring eggs that line the shore. We see, we've seen grizzly bears eat herring eggs in the springtime as, you know, one of the only food sources they, that they get after the long hibernation. So when herring spawn, they spawn in kind of the intertidal zone. So when the tide goes down, you see just layers and layers of these tiny eggs kind of shimmering on the shoreline. And one female herring can lay about up to 20,000 eggs. Mm. And, you know, these are big schools of fish. And his, and this has been happening for thousands of years. And our ecosystem is now relying on these spring spawns to feed it. So what what is the perceived difficulty with this particular season? I'm just going to summarize what's happening in BC right now because uh, that context is kind of important. We have five herring fishery areas in British Columbia currently. Um, we have Haida Gwaii, we have the Central Coast, uh, the West Coast of Vancouver Island, we have what's called Prince Rupert District or the North Coast, um, and then we have the Strait of Georgia. And the Strait of Georgia has always been a stronghold for herring and has always been the stronghold for the herring fishery. Um, but right now, four of those five areas have been closed. So the Strait of Georgia currently is the only fishing area open in BC. And on a wider context, it's actually the only fishing area that's open to herring on the entire west coast of the Pacific Northwest, basically, okay. all the way from California to Alaska. So the Strait of Georgia is the only herring fishery left. And that is kind of scary because of the importance of this fish, uh, which I spoke to earlier. Yeah. Um, what's happening with DFO um, is that, you know, they don't have a good history of managing fisheries. And of the four areas that have been closed in British Columbia, DFO has only voluntarily closed one of them and that's because of protests from last year from the Laxcolams and the Metlakatla First Nation mm. um, and so that was the last year that the Prince Rupert District um, was open. The other three areas in British Columbia were only closed uh, by legal action through the First Nations of those particular areas. So I don't know if DFO would have closed those areas if it weren't mm. for these injunctions. So we can't, so from that, you know, it's kind of safe to assume that we can't trust DFO to close a fishery based on their precautionary principle because 
it hasn't really worked like that in the past. Um, so what what's really important right now, and and this is from history, is that communities have to speak up for their fish if we want to see these fisheries in the future and if we want to see this fish in the future. And this is a really important point because of the importance of herring to the entire food web. Um, you know, you can argue about the numbers, you can argue about the statistics, but the fact that the Strait of Georgia is the only area that's still open to this fishery is kind of evidence enough that we need to really exercise caution when we're thinking about opening this fishery and we're mm. thinking about how we're going to open this fishery. The 20% quota, which I believe you kind of wanted to talk about, mm. it was established in 1983 after a period that was incredibly tough for herring, the herring fishery on the coast. The herring fishery collapsed after you know decades of overfishing in 1967. Yes. And, and this is a coast-wide collapse. And the thing is, a lot of the fishermen now, you know, it's been long enough that it's hard to remember that collapse. Um, and I think, you know, that's part of the problem. But um, with that, you know, our baseline for abundance of herring on this coast has totally shifted. Um, and that's an issue. The issue of shifting baselines has been talked about a number of times within mm-hmm. scientific literature. Currently, DFO uses a baseline of 1951. They say they use a baseline of 1951, but um, a paper published um, by Ian McKechnie and his colleagues in, 19, in 2014, which looked at 171 archaeological sites between you know Puget Sound and Alaska, mm. found that historically, herring were much more abundant on this coast than they are today. And herring have provided an, a critical food source to people on this coast for you know thousands and thousands of years. And the fact that we've depleted this population in you know a hundred years is cause for concern. And you know, before the fishery collapsed in the sixties, um, and even in the seventies, like we were catching hundreds of thousands of tons of fish. And we look at the fishery today and people are excited when they're able to catch, you know, 10,000 tons. The quota this year was 9,240 tons of fish. And the expected return this year was 54,000 tons. But between, you know, 1950 and 1960, the average catch was about, you know, 49,000 tons. Mm. So if you look at those numbers, it's it's pretty obvious that we're kind of living in a world of diminishing returns. And if this is the last area that's viable for, for this fishery, and if we want to see this fishery in the future, you know, why not consider, you know, giving these fish a break for a few years and see what, see what happens? Because, because herring, especially in the Strait of Georgia, if you look at the population dynamics of herring, the Strait of Georgia has often acted as a source population mm. because, you know, we always look at these discrete populations of fish um, and we love to think in terms of discrete populations. This is this, is this area of fish. This is this population of fish. 
But fish don't think like that. Fish don't think in terms of areas. They don't think in terms of boundaries. Um, and, you know, if there's a chance that letting the Strait of Georgia recover, you know, they might feed into these other areas that are closed, and we might actually be able to see the rest of British Columbia herring populations rebound. Mm -hmm. There's concern right now because all of these other areas, some of these areas are not recovering. Um, and that might be because there's evidence that, you know, if a population is not doing well, well, in terms of, you know, when you think of metapopulation dynamics, mm. if a population is not doing well, they'll, they'll feed into a sink population. Mm -hmm. And the Strait of Georgia might be that sink population. So just because, you know, you, you predict the total abundance in the Strait of Georgia to be 54,000 tons, it could be that, you know, 5,000 tons are coming from the west coast of Vancouver Island. It could be that 2,000 tons are coming from Haida Gwaii, and that's not being accounted for in the literature. I see. Would you be able to talk a little bit about an area that is shut down and is sort of displayed um, some restraint? Can you speak yeah. about any of that? Yeah, and that's it's such an interesting story because, you know, this has happened across the coast. And because we have these borders, I think it kind of limits us in taking in the whole picture. And in so last year in San Francisco Bay, the San Francisco Bay commercial fishery was closed for the first time since, since 2009. Um, and that's because of smaller fish and weak markets. Mm -hmm. um, last year also, and this year, Alaska herring fisheries were closed. Um, and it's, you know, it's a combination of factors. The management of these fish is not accounting for all of these factors. It's not accounting for changing ocean conditions. Um, in BC, it's not accounting for all these species that are now recovering, including, you know, our humpback whale populations, um, and our pinniped populations. Mm. Um, and it's not accounting for, you know, other human impacts. In BC, we still have fish farms, um, which we know are spreading sea lice, and we know those sea lice are attacking herring as well as salmon. Mm -hmm. um, and who knows what these diseases um, that are impacting fish, uh, fish farms are doing to our herring fishery um, and are doing to, you know, other, other fish species because the ocean is an open system. So I have some numbers um, about California and Alaska, mm. um, just in terms of value, because I think maybe your audience might be interested. So San Francisco Bay is the last fishery in California, and even between 2013 and 2018, I know you can't really you can't really compare two years, um, but it's an interesting comparison. In 2013. Um, they made it made over a million dollars, um, which is pretty big for a small fishery. Okay. And in 2018, it went down to fourteen thousand mm. dollars. Um, in Alaska, the Togiak fishery in 2019, the fishers made about one point five million dollars. And in in the 1990s, when the row was worth a thousand dollars a ton, mm. they made about twenty million dollars. So this has happened in a very brief period of time, especially if you consider, you know, the historic or geologic time frame. We're not interested in closing the fishery just 
because we don't want to see these fish being fished. We're interested in closing the fishery to make sure that these fish are around for the future. You know, and and there's a lot to be said for, you know, taking a step back, especially right now during this kind of crazy coronavirus time. Mm. You know, it seems like a great time when market value is low, mm-hmm. when this these populations are at kind of this critical stage on the west coast of North America to rethink how we manage this fishery and think about how we can keep these fish around and increase value for fishermen um, so that people on this coast can actually live off the resources that we have in a truly sustainable way. Well, that's our episode. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the herring fishery in the paper that Deirdre referred to, you can check out our Instagram page at keeping underscore green. You'll also find links to Lucy Poli and Tim Carleal's personal social media pages to find out more about the Gulf of California. I'm Ian Perry. Until next time, keep it green. Thank you.